0: 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3, God's Word says this, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, but was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Did you pray with me as we just ask God to teach us today through his word? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Father, we gather today because we want to praise you, like we sing. You are the God from whom all blessings flow. We have nothing without you. We are so dependent upon you. And Lord, as you're singing, I was so struck by that line with that his disciples. It's good I leave that the Spirit may come. We are living in that time right now where your Holy Spirit is with us and among us and dwelling with us and ministering to us. And Lord, it's because of the rescue that you accomplished for us on the cross that that is a reality for us today. And so Lord, we just invite you through your Spirit to move among us, to teach us and lead us today. Would you impress upon our hearts the beauty and the importance of the gospel today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, a couple of months ago, we had uh, we had some visitors from uh, from out of town. Many of you uh, actually met them. They were here with us um, on a Sunday morning. Uh, friends from the Czech Republic, and uh, as they were coming to visit here, I thought, you know, okay, never been to California. I Got to show them like all of the spots, and I, I'm like creating a whole spreadsheet and trying to figure out where are the, all the places I need to take my friends to show them, you know, L.A., Southern California, and I'm like creating lists and. One of the places I was thinking, I was like, well, I don't really want to go to Hollywood, but you kind of got to see Hollywood, right? I guess if you've never seen it. But honestly, I don't want to sit in the traffic. And so I had a couple other friends of mine uh, suggest to me, like, hey, why don't you take them to Santa Monica? I'm like, okay, like, yeah, Santa Monica's cool, I guess. So I was like, hey, we'll, we'll go to Santa Monica. So um, I take my friends and we drive and, and we go to Santa Monica and, um, and as we're there, these guys have, have not seen, well, one of them in particular has not seen the California coast before. I, I don't know what kind of beaches he's seen in the past, but he gets there, and, and these two just, like, take off. We get to the Santa Monica Pier, and I, like, look down on my phone for a minute, and I look up, and I'm like, where, are, where did they go? They, they are lost. I cannot find them. I don't know where they are. And uh, so I walk down to the beach, and I see one of them. He's FaceTiming his kids on the beach, just showing them the beach, and I'm standing there, like, just waiting and I'm looking around, and I'm realizing Santa Monica is gorgeous. I was just like, wow, we live here. Like, this is amazing. Like, I look uh, ahead of me, and I see the, the ocean and the beautiful sand on the beach, and I turn around, and I see, like, you know, those cliffs, and you see Pacific Coast Highway, and all these buildings behind it, and mountains, and I look down the coast, and, you know, you see Malibu, and you, it, like, it's just gorgeous, and it was, it just like impressed itself upon me in that moment of like wow, I have forgotten how beautiful Southern California is. Some people will go their whole lives and maybe never see a beach like this, a coastline like this. It just struck me. It was amazing. And it was this moment that we've probably all experienced of this this tendency we have in us to where our hearts tend to grow cold to things that were once extraordinary, right? So we get so familiar with something, we see it so often, it's just kind of like, yeah, Santa Monica, man, it's just the beach, perfect weather, amazing food, it's it's fine if you want to see it, right? The things that once were extraordinary to us, just over time, our hearts start to grow cold to them, Many of us have experienced this, particularly towards nature. We see so much of it. We see mountains, desert, beach, beautiful sunsets all the time. It's just like, yeah, cool. But even to other things, right? to, To people, maybe even in marriage relationships, maybe your heart has grown cold to your spouse, who you once found to be extraordinary. Or as parents, maybe your own children, you once found them to be incredible when they were Brand new little babies, and now that they disobey you, you're like, gosh, the luster's really worn off here. Right? There are things in our lives that where our hearts just grow cold towards them, even though we once found them to be incredible and extraordinary. The same can be true about our perspective of God and who He is. In fact, this very thing happened of Corinth, particularly towards the resurrection of Jesus— The resurrection of Jesus is so crucial to the message of the gospel that sinners could be saved. The resurrection is so crucial. In fact, the Corinthians at one point heard about the resurrection and thought it was amazing, believed in it wholeheartedly. But now where they stand, where this letter is being written, it's kind of like, Jesus rising from the dead. Are we sure that happened? Actually, you know, I don't even think that did happen. That's not even all that important anymore. And Paul's been writing in this chapter, as he turns to chapter 15, to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How has this grown cold on you? Like, this is so, so important. In fact, he's really looking at the whole of the gospel message to say, nothing is more important than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because that is true, we ought to live like that's true. Nothing is more important than the gospel. So let us live like it. What makes the gospel so important, though? Why is this message the most important thing? And I want to look at three things this morning from this section. It's this. It's because the gospel is so important because, one, it comes to us with tremendous credibility. It comes to us with power. And it comes to us with urgency. First and foremost, the gospel comes to us with Tremendous credibility. Look where Paul goes in verse 3. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And it's this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, or to Peter as we know him, and then to the Twelve. The gospel comes to us with credibility. Credibility. Now, before we get much further, I want to just simply ask this question. What is the gospel? We have the gospel in the name of our church. We're going to be talking about the gospel. We should know very simply what is the gospel. And here's the, the simplest way I go to to explain the gospel. The gospel is this. It is the good news. It's literally what the word means. It is good new, the good news that Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation for all who believe. It is the good news that Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation for all who believe. He has done everything necessary to forgive our sins, to reconcile us to God, and it is for anyone but not everyone. It is for all who believe. All who believe can be saved from their sins because of the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul, as he's writing, he is concerned with the Corinthians grabbing hold of the full gospel message. Not bits and pieces of it, but the full gospel message, particularly focused on the life, the death, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He wants them to grasp this, to realize this thing is of first importance. And he begins by telling them, I'm delivering this gospel to you, and it is what I myself have received. Right? There's this passing on, and there's this multiplication, if you will. I delivered to you what I first received. What I received, I deliver to you. Now, Paul received this gospel message. In particular here, he's going to talk about how he has received this from the church, from other believers. But we know from the book of Galatians that Paul has also said, I have received the gospel from Jesus Christ himself. In Galatians chapter 1, he says this, right? If you know Paul's story, he was persecuting the church. He was imprisoning Christians, maybe even killing them, certainly approving of their death. And Jesus appears to him in his resurrected body. Not just simply a vision. Paul would talk about the appearance of Jesus to him in the same way he would talk about Jesus' appearance to all the other apostles. Jesus appeared to Paul and told him to stop persecuting him and says, I am the Lord. And it changes Paul's life. And Paul would go on to say that I received this gospel from Jesus himself. This is not man's made-up message. Jesus bore testimony himself on this message to me. And that deeply matters because if it's a message that Jesus is delivering, it's quite credible. God himself is saying this message is of first importance to me, so I'm giving it to you. But he also goes on to talk about how the church testifies to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, we, we, we might miss it, but if, we do, if you do any kind of studying or reading on the history of this passage, you'll know this, that the first, the verses 3, 4, and 5 are thought of very, uh, it's, it's fairly well agreed upon, that these three verses are probably some old creed of the early church. And by a creed, we simply mean the, the people of God getting together to say, we believe this. We'll get to that in a second. You can take that off. It's thought that these, these three verses were something put together by the early church in Jerusalem to say, this is what it means to be a Christian. We believe these things. And that Paul is probably simply quoting this back to the Corinthians to say, hey, remember, you can't deny the resurrection. This is central to who we are and what we believed. So he quotes a creed. And I want you to notice something within this. In this early creed, the atonement, okay, the, the, the idea of God sacrificing himself for our sins, that's this idea of atonement, this sacrificial atonement, one dying in place of others. Atonement and the resurrection are key figures before Paul arrives on the scene. Before Paul even preaches the gospel to anybody, the idea that, Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins and rose again were firmly established before Paul arrived. And so here's how the creed probably breaks down. You can throw up uh, not the Apostles Creed, but there's a slide right before that. Perfect. So this is probably the essence of what that creed is. In four parts, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he was seen by Cephas and the 12th. And then he includes these, these phrases according to the scriptures as well. Paul is quoting this to say, this is who we are. This is what we believe. And if Paul's quoting this, this this dates back to the very beginning of the church. Right? As Jesus has lived his life, he's died on the cross, he's rose from the dead, he's ascended back to heaven, he's sent his spirit to the early church in Acts chapter 2, and they've gathered around these core truths. This is what we believe. This is not some made-up theology from later down the road to try to create some, you know, cool religion that we could gather around. No, this is the beginning of the church. They've gathered around these truths, and look what's present at the very beginning. Christ died for our sins. From the very beginning of the church, this idea that there's this alienation between us and God, that sin has created this gap between us and Him, and something needed to be done about it. And so Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. For our sins. This language comes from Jesus himself as he's sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper, taking communion. And he says, take, this is my body, which is for you. It's language of substitution. It's language of, I will die in your place. It's it, Just in this very phrase, Christ died for our sins is the message of the gospel, that you deserve to die, I deserve to die for our sins, but Jesus Christ went in our place and died for not his sins, but ours, receiving the punishment that we deserve. Okay, this kind of theology is not some later invention of the church. Christ died for our sins, and Christ was buried. Actually, literally, dead. In the ground. In the tomb. In the grave. Dead. Not sleeping. Not badly wounded. Not passed out. But dead. Dead. He was buried. Christ was also raised on the third day. To where Paul is emphasizing a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, not a spiritual resurrection to where Jesus' soul had new life or some kind of ways we maybe talk about enlightenment or resurrection or newness. No, actual, physical, bodily, literal resurrection. And this phrasing that he uses is to say, he was raised and is still living. It's It's a verb that continues on. It's not a past form. It's a it's present. It's active. It's continuing to go on. He was raised, and he's still raised. He is still alive, because if he was raised and then died again, it's impressive, but it ultimately doesn't matter. But he's still living. What Paul is doing here is he is building the case for a gospel with credibility, one that the church has agreed upon, consistently affirmed since the very beginning and creeds have been really really important throughout the history of the church a lot of us think church history is really boring and dumb and unimportant and it really doesn't matter all that much that is not true this is the history of your family and it's around the most important thing in the world the gospel message and the church has gathered at many points throughout history to get together to say we need to clarify what we believe so that it can be preserved and passed on from generation to generation. And so there are councils that will get together throughout church history to say, hey, we have these false teachings that are arising, so let's get together around our Bibles and affirm, here's what we believe. We deny these false teachings and we believe this. In fact, one of the very earliest creeds of the early church is called the Apostles' Creed. It's called the Apostles' Creed, With which have, you can throw this up on the screen now, it's pieces of the Apostles' Creed date all the way back to 140 A.D., okay? That's r- roughly about 100 years after Jesus. Okay, pieces of this date all the way back to that. Now, it's called the Apostles' Creed not because the Apostles actually writ it, wrote it, but because it, it it is affirming the teaching of the Apostles, okay? This is the Apostles' Creed. Now, there's pieces of it in its final form now that probably got put together also a little bit later, but... Much of this dates back to to 140 AD. And it's just affirming the truth of who God is and what He's done. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell or to the grave. The third day He rose from the dead ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. At this point in history, that word Catholic simply means God's entire church, no matter where it is geographically within the world. It's not actually referring to some kind of denomination, or what we would think of when we hear Catholic today uh, with a capital C. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The church gathered around this very, very early on. There's another very early creed called the Nicene Creed, which is around 325. Beautiful creed affirming the the Trinity, the triune nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's wonderful. Go read it later. But the church has gathered around these things for a long, long time, and they're really, really important because it helps us recognize our faith and what we believe. This gospel message is not new, it's very old. It's what God's people have been believing since the church began. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying this gospel comes with credibility from Jesus himself and also from the very early church. But then he also says credibility for this gospel comes from the Scriptures. Right? He includes in that creed according to the Scriptures. So he's saying according to the Scriptures, Christ died, was buried, and was raised on the third day. He's probably not referring to one particular Scripture. He's probably referring to the whole of the Old Testament to say the Bible that God wrote in the Old Testament affirms this gospel. Though we could probably go to a few different texts and see some wonderful realities. Isaiah 53 maybe the greatest of all. Isaiah 53, which is showing the sacrifice of Jesus. It's worth reading. It's about 12 verses. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, just cast your mind to Jesus right now. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God wrote this and promised this long before Jesus came to earth to pay the price for our sins. The scriptures testify to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of sinners. Paul is saying this is not a new message It's very important. Jesus testifies to it. The early church testifies to it. The scriptures testify to it. In fact, Acts chapter 2 would say the whole message of Jesus was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The resurrection. Jesus, after Jesus rose from the dead, he's walking with his disciples. They don't recognize who he is, which is insane. He's walking. The resurrected Jesus is walking with his disciples and is explaining to them from the Scriptures. In Luke 24, it says this, "...beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself." Jesus starts walking through the Old Testament and says, this is about, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me. The Gospel's right here, it's right here, it's right here, it's right here. The Scriptures testify to these things. But that's still not enough because Paul keeps going to say it's not just Jesus that testifies, the early church that testifies, the scriptures that testify, also history testifies. This is not his main point here, but it's important. He appeared to people. The resurrection, re- resurrected Jesus appeared to real humans. 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive. Meaning, hey, you can go talk to these people. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. But there is tremendous historical evidence and good reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead. Paul's point, I think, in all of this is to say essentially this Christianity is based in real, tangible, historical realities. What we believe is not some fairy tale or some conspiracy theory. The early church actually believed these things. You have to make a decision on whether you believe them, but you can't just say this was made up. These people actually believed these things. And God has preserved these things for us because they are of first importance to him. So believe the full gospel. Be confident in it this gospel message that Jesus Christ came to live a perfect life for sinners, to die for our sins on the cross, to raise to new life, and to say all who believe in me will be saved from their sins. That message changed the world. That gospel message started with 12 disciples, 11, started with just those guys and grew to 33 million people within 350 years. 12. To 12 to about 33 million people in 300 plus years. That's insane. That's tremendous growth. Why? Why? We have to ask why. Why would something, why would a message grow that tremendously because it's life-changing because it's life-changing because the gospel not only comes with credibility it comes with power it comes with power look at where he says in verse 8 he's saying last of all jesus appeared as to one untimely born he appeared to me I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul is highlighting the power of the gospel. This message is not just some history book lesson that says this happened. This is a message that radically and completely transforms people's lives. It comes with power. And Paul himself is an example of that. The, the language he uses might be a little lost on us here. When he says, as to one untimely born, that word literally means as to one born prematurely. But what he's saying by that is not, I was just born before I should have been before my time. It would have been nicer if I was born later. No, he's capturing the idea of any baby that is born long before it should have been born. A miscarriage. An abortion maybe even a stillbirth. This was a phrase that had become, that had started to be used in in this time to refer to anything freakish or odd or disgusting or, or, or horrific. Paul was saying, that was me before I knew Christ. Essentially to say this, to be in that state is to be in a wretched, dreadful place, in a deplorable position to say, before I knew Christ, I could sink no lower. Because for a child to be in that place, a a child could sink no lower than to be miscarried, to be aborted, to be born before its time, to be in such an awful position. Paul's saying, that was mean. I could sink no lower in life than where I was before Christ came to me. But now he's an apostle. Now he's someone impacting the world, not just the world then, but us now, 2,000 years later. We're reading his words, gleaning from them. Paul's saying that was that was who I was, not just because of my lowly weaknesses. He goes further to say, that's who I was because I was a persecutor of the church. I was the one who was terrorizing Christians. I was persecuting Jesus himself and his people. That's how low and deplorable I was. That's how wicked I was. Paul was a spreader of terror among the Christians. So much so that after he became a Christian, God appears to one of his people and says, you need to go uh, minister to a guy named Paul. And the guy answers God and he's like, "Uh, I've heard of this guy. I don't want to go to him. He kills people. Look at the description of Paul in Acts chapter 8 in the very beginning. The very beginning of Acts chapter 8 says this. After the brutal death and murder of a man named Stephen, who from all accounts is kind, loving, generous, he's full of the holy spirit. He's doing ministry to widows. And then he shares the good news about who Jesus is, and the people hate him so much for it. They drag him outside of the city and stone him to death. Friends, if that happened today, okay? There's no one that would be approving of that. Nobody would be like, "Yeah, totally. It's super good that that happened." No. But look at what it says about Saul, same man here, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In fact, at the stoning of Stephen, it says that the people that were stoning him laid down their garments at the feet of this man. Saying, hey, hold my coat. This is is who Paul was. He could sink no lower. And then Jesus appeared to him. And everything changed. Everything changed. He became a proclaimer of this Jesus. He had his sins Forgiven and within Paul is this wonderful picture and reminder for us that this gospel saves not just lowly, unimpressive people, this gospel saves evil people. That there is no one, no sinner too wicked or too wretched or too wayward. That there is no sin too dark or too evil for the grace of God. No one. There is no one in so low and deplorable of a place that they cannot be radically transformed by the grace of God. In fact, the legacy of the Christian faith is filled with transformation stories. It's what makes it so incredible. It's filled with stories of addicts who become adopted sons and daughters of God. It's filled with prostitutes who become proclaimers of the gospel. It's filled with murderers that become ministers to people. It's filled with greedy people that turn into generous people, angry abusers that turn into humble servants, and lovers of evil that turn into the light of the world. (laughs) This is what God's grace does in people's lives it changes us completely, and it's all by grace. Every single solitary person who comes to Christ for salvation is completely and radically transformed no exceptions. No exceptions. Some of us like to think we did much transformation, but we're just lying. Every single person that comes to Christ for salvation is radically and completely transformed no exceptions. It's our story. It's what God does by His grace. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the invitation is this, come to Christ and everything will change. Everything. Come to Christ and give Him your sins. Give Him your addictions and your weaknesses and your shame and your sorrow, and He will change you. He will forgive you. He will change your shame to glory and honor. He will give you righteousness. He will give you power. He will give you joy. He will give you life. This is who he is, and it's what he does. Some of us present the gospel, and we shortchange the power that it comes with. Some of us have been taught to do this. I was taught to do this when I worked at the Apple store. I was told this as an Apple employee, under and over-deliver. If someone brings their computer for fixing, and you know it's going to take probably three days, tell them it'll take five so that when we call them, and it takes three, oh, amazing, it's, it's ready sooner than I thought. But don't you dare tell them it takes three, and then it's going to really take five, because now they're going to be disappointed and angry. Under promise, so we can over deliver. Some of us think we need to do that with the gospel, and it's wicked. Some of us think our expectations of Jesus are so low that we really want to brace people for impact. We want them to expect to be disappointed by God. So we, we present the gospel with really low expectations. Come to him for salvation and, you know, you'll have like your sins forgiven, but things will be tough and it'll be, you know, I don't know. If you want, it will change like your Sundays. You'll have something new to do on Sunday mornings. Um... And then you have a well. You'll get a book. You can have something to read when you're bored. Um, but how often do we present the gospel to people and say it is going to completely change your life? No exceptions. It will transform you. You will completely change. All of your shame, you won't have it anymore. You'll have a God that delights in you and provides for you, and is, and He will not disappoint. Now, see, we feel the need to underpromise so that God. Think honestly, going to underdeliver, friends. That's not the gospel. That's not what God is trying to get us to believe about who He is. This Bible is filled with story after story after story of God trying to get us to believe. Stories of God's miraculous, transformative power. Do we have to hear to finally believe that's who He is, and that's what He does? Maybe it's because we never thought we really needed that much transformation. You know how the Bible's clear on this. Second Corinthians chapter 3 with face are beholding God transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The Bible is telling us when you come to Christ and you look you are being transformed from of glory to another. He also says this two chapters later, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Old is gone, the new has come. When you come to Christ with all of your stuff, he changes you completely. So much so, he's making you to look like Jesus. That's the transformation that's promised anyone who will come to Christ. How dare we change it? Come to Christ and you will be completely changed. He will transform you. He did it for Paul. He's done it for everyone in this room that believes. If you don't believe this morning, come to Christ and you'll be changed. Nothing, nothing will do what only the gospel can do. Nothing will give you the hope that you want. Nothing will ease your guilt. Nothing will give you meaning. Nothing will give you the strength that you want resurrect your of Jesus. It comes also with, with urgency. He closes whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. He's trying to tell them preach this. Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and you believe that at some point. Because that's the point of preaching. The point of preaching is is belief. The point of preaching is not just to be impressive. It's not just to relay information. The point of preaching is belief. It is to move someone from not believing something to believing something. There is a sense of urgency that comes with the gospel. There is an urgency to God's love. It is because He loves us That he moves to action to save us. God is not a God who simply tells us, I love you. He's a God who says, I love you and let me show you. There's an urgency to it. He moves to action. There's an urgency to the news of his life, death, and resurrection. There's a call, it's not just information. It's, hey, this is true. Therefore, believe it. Believe it. Wrap your whole life around this. Let me ask you this. If you're a Christian here this morning, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, like let's say somehow the body of Jesus was found. Okay, just go with me. Jesus did not raise from the dead, Christian. What changes about your life? And I don't want you to just think about the right theological answer. I want you to think about the practical day to day of your life. Does anything really change? I mean, certainly it should. It would mean your sins aren't forgiven, it would mean that you're completely wasting your life following after someone who's dead. But let me ask you this Christian, Jesus is alive. So how does that change your life today? Does it? Certainly it should. It means because you believe in him, your sins are forgiven. You're not wasting your life. In fact, you're giving your life to the most important thing in all of eternity. It means you have power. You have the Spirit of God. You have the authority of Christ. You have life. You have a future and you have a mission. If he really is alive, you have all those things today, right now. It should change everything about your life, but not just your life, everything about your day today and tomorrow and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. It means you have a future coming for you one day, and it means that every single day you have a mission because it came from the resurrected Jesus to go and make disciples. To not just go around and say, so here's who Jesus is and what he did. So, you know, make of that whatever you'd like. That's not what we're called to. There must be an urgency to our love to say, not just Jesus did this and I believe this. and You can if you want, but you don't have to. It's just you do you, I'll do me. Whatever makes you feel good. No, the the call of the gospel is, here's Jesus and all that he's done. Repent and believe. Repent of your sins and believe in him. Christian, if you don't believe the gospel is urgent, nobody will. If you don't believe the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is urgent, requires a response. If you don't believe that, nobody will believe that. We need to be clear with our friends, our loved ones, our coworkers, our neighbors. Jesus is alive. Sin is in you. Death is coming for you. Judgment is coming for your sins. But Jesus paid the price if you trust in him. So repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus. We need to be clear with them. If we're honest, this is tough. If we're honest, There are some people in our life that know we believe in Jesus but don't think that there's really any urgency to it. Like, it doesn't really matter because we've never told them. We've maybe told them about how awesome Jesus is, how he's the best, he's cool, how you love him, but we've never told them that they need to repent of their sins and believe in him or else they're going to suffer judgment. If we won't do that, who will do that? It's a terrifying reality for me to think of my friends and my neighbors and people standing before Jesus and saying, I had no idea I was supposed to repent and believe. My, My Christian neighbor, who's a pastor, never told me. Is that not what we're called to do? Is there not an urgency to this message? This is who Jesus is, and the call is to repent and believe. And I'll tell you what, God's at work. God's getting people's hearts ready all the time. And in evangelism, what we get to do is we get to join in what God's already doing in someone's life. And we get to come alongside somebody and share the gospel with them. And those that God has prepared and gotten ready in that moment, they'll believe. They'll put their faith and their trust in Jesus. You see, we're, we're a lot less like a lawyer who maybe goes into a courtroom and has to convince a bunch of people of something. We're a lot of people who kind of shows up and two people are standing there and a whole lot has gone into the process to get them ready for this moment and you're just standing there to make things official. When we share the gospel, bring it to people that God has gotten ready. We don't, we don't know when they're ready. We don't know how ready they are, but we know God's working. And when I come to share the gospel with somebody, I want to think like that. I will share the message of Jesus. I will call them to believe. And if God has gotten them ready for salvation in this moment, they will believe. Let me ask you this: Has the gospel lost its importance in your life? Has it lost its urgency? Has it lost its lustre? For you, have you started turning to other things? Have you started to maybe rely on your good works and your good efforts and your good morality? Have you distracted into building your life around your career and your relationships and your dreams? Have you been lured away by the desires of your flesh and the messages of this world? Have you refused to believe the urgency of all of this? Church, let's wake up. The gospel is of first importance. It means everything. C.S. Lewis famously said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. It's either nothing or it is absolutely everything. What Paul received, he's passing on to Corinth and he's passing on to us. What we received, we are to pass on as well. We are to pass the baton if you will. The two 2016 um, Rio Olympics, there was a very famous event of the 4x100 relay, the women's 4x100 relay. And you know American um, track and field were, were quite good at this sport. And so we brought out a, a stellar team of four ladies who are amazing. And they're going through the qualifying heats. And as they're going through the qualifying heats, they are the, the hands-down favorites to win this whole thing, this whole event. As they're going through their qualifying heats, Heat And they reach their second person, it was Allison Felix, who's running the longest stretch of this 4 by 100 meter. She goes to hand her baton, and they, they, don't, they, they botch the handoff, and the baton drops, and it hits the ground. And if you know track and field, you know in that moment you are immediately disqualified because you dropped the baton. And you listen to the broadcast, and it is shock. It is, it is insane that the, that the United States women are eliminated in a qualifying heat because they dropped the baton. They end up finishing the race. They pick up the baton, and they finish the race, and they appeal the decision. Turns out someone in the, in the next lane over from Jamaica bumped into Allison Felix, and that's why she dropped it. So therefore, they were allowed to rerun the race with no one else on the track. They just had to get a qualifying time. And they, of course, ran the fastest qualifying time and got to now qualify for the finals. And in the finals, they're jittery. They're, you imagine they're nervous. You're nervous watching this. Like, please don't drop the baton this time. And they run, and they score the second fastest ever time in the 4x100 meter, and they get a gold medal. But all of it, of course, comes down to one thing. Can they pass the baton? It does not matter how fast you are. It doesn't matter how good you look, how smooth you run. If you cannot pass the baton, everything else is meaningless. There is nothing more important for us in our lives than passing on the baton of the gospel message. doesn't matter how wonderful of a life that you lead, how kind you are, how loving, how much you pay it forward. If you don't pass the baton of the gospel, we are failing at what God has called us to do. There's nothing more important than this. In fact, the very fact that some of us here are Christians today is because someone else took what they received and passed it on to us. It's an extension of the grace of God. Paul ran his leg. It's time for us to run. Let's remember the gospel with credibility, with power, with urgency. and By God's grace, we will run our leg of the race. Let's pray together.